This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. The foster care system can be difficult for children to navigate, especially with disabilities. Today, we talk about how nurses can make a difference with the foster care system and these children's lives. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is The College Handoff. Our first guest today will be Dr. Christine Platt. Dr. Platt, mother to multiple foster children, shares about her doctoral research on disabled children in the foster care system. We'll also have the chance to hear from Capstone students Gabrielle Warwick and Brianna Oliphant, who were the only undergraduate student presenters at this year's American Psychiatric Nurses Association annual conference. Let's go to the interviews. Well, today we're lucky to have Dr. Christine Platt with us. She's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, some of the things that she's done. She has an extensive education and she's now working with foster care and doing research and helping with adoptions and things like that. So Dr. Christine Platt, thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. Well, Dr. Christine, because you are uh, alumna, I'm wondering if it's okay if I call you Christine. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, as I mentioned, you graduated from BYU. It's my understanding you have your master's of science. Is that right? Yes. Master's of science in nursing is a family nurse practitioner um, from BYU. And that was in 2014. Oh, wonderful. And before that, you were at the... Um, University of Minnesota is where I received my bachelor's degree. Yeah. So tell me about that transition. What brought you to BYU for the master's program? Oh, Yes. It's a bit of a long story. I was at the University of Minnesota, fabulous school, um, great resources. Um, I loved that they gave me the nursing foundation, including in public health nursing. Um, I began working in the hospital setting as a new graduate um, back then. And then I moved to Utah um, with my husband, who took a position here in the, the Department of Economics. Mm. And I began doing um, nursing care in the intensive care units at Utah Valley and worked there for several years, absolutely loved it, um, became a house supervisor, and then decided it was time for me to go back. I wanted to um, become a family nurse practitioner. And that's what led me um, to the BYU program. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful program and a great opportunity that I had. Yeah, I mean, we actually did an episode on um, specifically on the BYU uh, graduate program a couple episodes ago. But one of the things that's really unique about it is that it's very small. Was that something that drew you to it? Or is it more just the fact that you were married to someone who was working at BYU? Or what was some of the pros and cons that you were weighing with that? Right. Um, I love that the program was small. Um, a larger program would be fine too, but they really uh, wanted to make sure that every student succeeded. And I think the getting into the program is rather competitive. But once you're in, they really wanted to make sure that every student succeeded in whatever area they they were going into or um I know that the professors really took a, a keen interest in our personal lives and our research interests, which varied greatly from student to student. Gotcha. And you're still doing research to this day. So, I mean, that's definitely something that's kept with you. Before we get to that, though, after you finished up at BYU, you went to the University of Arizona where you got your DNP and your PhD with nursing and nursing teaching, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And with an emphasis with the PhD on research. Oh, wonderful. Well, I mean, I guess was... What were, what were some of the maybe early signs, right? Most of our listeners, they're undergraduate nursing students. They're working on their BSN. What were some of the things that maybe clued you into the idea that you might be interested in research and going on and getting a PhD? Well, the beautiful thing about nursing is that you never really stop learning and the opportunities never end. So you can be happy where you're at um, in one clinic or one setting and you'll start noticing things um, that could be improved upon or uh, ways that you might be able to improve healthcare for certain individuals or communities. And once you start getting that little interest or that bug in your head, um, the next step naturally is, is research and finding out, is that idea that you have um, a good idea? Will it work? And how do you find out that if it, does it really work? And so that's where research was the next step. Um, and also the idea of being prepared to teach and 
um, help the next generation of nurses to really be um, be excellent nurses and and continue in advancing the science of nursing. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. A lot of our nursing students, I mean, they just get burnt out. It's a lot of work that they have to do, as you're well aware. There's a lot of lecture and just, you know, brunt studying that has to be done. What changes once you get into higher level, PhD level courses? Are they a little bit more autonomous? Is it more research where you get to choose it? Or is it still kind of more book work that just makes that you just have to kind of do? I would say it's a lot more autonomous, but there are the basics. Just as in an undergraduate nursing program, you have to learn anatomy, physiology. You have to understand pharmacology. Uh, When you get to the graduate level, you still, you have to understand statistics, medical statistics. You have to take the key classes and understand how to put together a randomized control trial correctly um, or your research, um, you junk in, junk out, right? Yeah. So you do have a lot of book work and studying and Um, but it's different because you're applying it to something you love. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for me, that was really families raising children with disabilities and particularly in the foster care community. There's a very high percentage of, of children in the foster care system that have disabilities. And I feel like they have the cards stacked against them because not only do they not have the consistency of what we think of as a, a typical family life, but they're moved from school to school, um, home to home. Uh, medical provider to medical provider. And so they lose a lot of the consistency that would help them uh, when they are the children that a lot of times need it most. And so that's where my interest really grew um, with my research. And so when I went to the University of Arizona, uh, my my research trajectory kind of landed on that um, families raising children with disabilities and how to uh, include other siblings in the home. A lot of times we focus on just a main caregiver. And so my work in, in recognizing my own family and my link to foster care, I started thinking about all the different people in a child's life that provide care for them and stability and help um, to help them live uh, to their fullest. I love that. And I mean, you're kind of mentioning it, you're mentioning it a little bit um, as far as what led you to get interested in research. Maybe talk more, just a little bit more about that, maybe in your own personal life. How many kids did you, did you, did you have or what were the things that just kind of set you on this career path outside of just getting a PhD? What made you decide, well, you want to study this? Oh, that's, that's, that could be a very long story. <laughs> uh, but to make it short, the question that people always ask me is, well, how many children do you have? Mm-hmm. And I've come up with a short answer that is currently I have six. But that can change um, quite frequently. We've had 17 foster children through our home. Wow. Um, in the last 11 years, most uh, have come into our home because of my nursing and medical training. Um, and they have been medically fragile or in that category. We had um, our first two sons. And I had a friend who was a foster parent who always um, kind of, she kept planting the seed of their children out there that, that desperately need homes. And we decided to have our third son, uh, Levi, and that's when we also started the process for foster care. And we felt that our family, uh, we love our family, we love our boys. We didn't need more children, but we had the resources to help more children, which put us in the, a really nice position in that um, if a child came into foster care, we could give them a temporary home and work reunification with their biological parents because we didn't, we didn't have this need to feel like we had to adopt but at the same time, um, if for some reason they couldn't go safely back to uh, their biological family um, or their what we call primary parents, we were in a position where we could give them a permanent home. Wow. And so it just um, kind of, it made sense. Um, and our lives have been uh, greatly blessed for it. So I have, we have three biological children and then we have two adopted uh, daughters um, that are just fabulous and spunky. Um, and they came through the foster care system. And then we have one foster daughter right now and, um, we are planning to adopt. She, uh, her parents no longer have parental rights and the tentative court plan is to adopt, um, in early 2023. Wow. Well, good for you and your husband for making the sacrifices to be parents, not only to your own children, but to those in need as well. That's amazing. And I'm sure it's not always easy. 
It's not easy, but luckily we have a great community that that helps support us to be able to to do it. Yeah. Well, I want to back up just real quickly. What started you and your husband on this path of taking care of children in the foster care on the foster care system? Because of all that I experienced with the challenges of helping children who had special needs in foster care um, and looking at it from a public health uh, standpoint, I realized there was such a great need to help these children through case coordination and through um, school nursing and all the opportunities that nurses had to intersect with these children's lives. Um, the research just started to fall into place. Wow. So most of your dissertation then was on adoption, foster care, yes. kind of. Um, I, I might talk too long about it if you get me talking about my dissertation. <laughs> anyone, I get really excited. anyone who has a dissertation can talk too long about it, which is totally okay. Yeah. So my dissertation was a randomized control trial of a behavioral intervention. We took um, foster families over the entire United States, and they had to have a current foster care placement and another child living permanently in the home. So that child could have been a bio, biological child to the parents, uh, an adopted child, uh, a child with guardian, that they had guardianship, but a, a permanent child living in the home mm-hmm. and a, a current fo- a child in foster care. And what um, usually happens with foster care is they always train the main caregiver, the main parent, and they give them these resources to help them be a better parent, especially for kids with um, severe challenges or behavioral issues. Yeah but they fail to include the other children in the home in that education process. Gotcha. So many times I noticed that if you didn't prepare the other children in the home or give them a way to communicate about what they were seeing, um, a lot of times a placement didn't go well. The, the child in foster care may not have been accepted into the family as much, or there was more challenges if the children didn't get along. And so our behavioral intervention, it was adapted um, from an adoption series called the Connected Family Series. Uh, by um, Dr. Huntsley at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. They're well, well known throughout the adoption and foster community. And we took this intervention. It's an online intervention um, that was to help improve communication and, and family relationships and sibling relationships. And we adapted it to foster families. So the families each had, um, it was a four-week series. It was online. It was during COVID, which actually made it great that we can give access to families who live all over at their own pace. It didn't require um, someone being with them. And it was videos for parents and for the children in the home. And they had activities to follow up that were about connecting as a family. And then we tested using a family hardiness index um, and sibling relationship, um, sibling inventory of relationship, uh, sibling behavior, the Schaefer sibling inventory of behavior. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, and what it looked at was the, um, the, the sibling relationship, the positive and negative indicators. But in a nutshell, oh, and another really exciting part is we brought in a, a biomarker. So a lot of times in, in the health sciences, we do surveys to say, okay, did their, what is the, the patient's perception of, did they improve? Did family relationships improve? Did their stress go down? What mm-hmm. was their hardiness level and how are the relationships? Well, we decided to also take a subgroup and test their salivary cortisol levels. Mm. So we were testing a marker for stress in the family as well. And we did that with the children and with the parents. Gotcha. So, and in a nutshell, um, we found that the intervention was statistically significant, that a simple online intervention when done right could actually improve sibling relationships, improve the family hardiness. um, And... What was really exciting is when we did a mediation analysis. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit into statistics. I, I love statistics, so this is my bread and <laughs> <Yeah>. butter. But <laughs> So when we got into the mediation analysis, mm-hmm. we found a very significant um, percentage of the increase in the family hardiness was due to the improved relationship between the child in foster care and the permanent sibling in the home. Really? So what does that mean? Families matter. When you talk about families, you can't forget or leave out the kids that are in the home. They play a huge role in caregiving, in connecting the family, and being there as, as a sibling, even if the child isn't, and I do it in air quotes, a permanent member of the family. Right. This kind of sounds like this could be a big culture shift, right? Like if you were able to um, encourage 
at this point, maybe compliance, but maybe more of a culture shift where we can shift our way of thinking from single caregivers to having a family of support for a foster child or an adopted child. Um, I mean, there's probably some really big implications that could come from that, I imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be that a sibling is blood related. You can improve those relationships and give foundation and connection for a child that may only be living in your home for one year. And those connections can still last. Yeah. How long ago was the trial done? Just this year. Wow. There you go. So you're going to see lots of spinoff studies in the future then. In fact, I took a position um, as a a TL1 STARS postdoctoral scholar with the University of Utah's College of Medicine, uh, School of Medicine. So, Wow. Well, you will have more opportunities to follow up then. I'm thrilled. The the different mentors that are available there and the other uh, researchers is just really exciting on the family caregiving research that they do. Well, this is a great example of what practical research really looks like. And I hope that some of our nursing students as they're listening to your story, that if they start to f- hear things that resonate with them a little bit, that they can maybe consider going on and getting um, getting a PhD or just opportunities to be more research-centered. I think a lot of times as, um, as undergraduate nursing students, we just kind of assume that, oh, bedside's the way to go. But, you know, there's a whole other side of research that I don't think is being explored as much as it should. Right, exactly. And they don't have to to stress or worry about it. There's a whole world out there of research and nursing. And yes, when you're you're in the undergraduate world, you're still learning what do blood gases mean? And that's a lot of information that you cram into your head. But all of those foundations um, really help you as you move to higher and higher levels of of research and understanding um, the the biology and the mechanisms for help for health um, is is really beautiful. And nursing just builds year by year upon that knowledge that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think nursing is a little bit unique as well in the sense that it's at least my sense of it as someone who's not a nursing student mm-hmm. that it, once you graduate, I mean, yes, you kind of have this certificate that lets you practice as a nurse, but there are just so many options available that this idea of continual education never really stops. And there's no, I've made it in nursing. You just have to keep going for sure. I think you're doing a great job with that. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about maybe the implications of your study um, in maybe some of even the other research that you're doing. Adoption and foster care, I feel like we talk a lot about that in society. And as someone that doesn't have a lot of knowledge about that, I've kind of gotten the impression that there's changes that need to happen with it. Um, it's inefficient, but I don't even know what those might be. Like, I mean, from your perspective, as someone who's not only adopted children, but has researched them, um, is an efficient system? Are things working the way they should be or, or, or do changes need to be made? I would say there are definite improvements that need to be made. Um, the people that I have come in contact with, um, with foster care are all, um, most all of them, I would say, were, are very well intentioned. They work day and night trying to help these children, but the system, it needs help. It does. And, and finding more efficient ways to help the system and to support these children um, is definitely needed. And they help support foster families. They do education and training. They use the Karen Purvis Institute of Development's training for the foster parents. What they haven't moved into yet, and that's because we're still developing it, right. is how do we prepare the whole family and, and how, do we, how do we help um, influence the community to also understand foster care better and, and be there for these children? I think children who experience foster care um, get a bad rap when they don't deserve it. Uh, they sometimes there's a fear when you hear the the term foster child because you think of of difficult behaviors or they've been through a lot of trauma and they absolutely have, mm-hmm. but it's not of any fault of their own. And and sometimes they just need someone who's loving, patient, kind. But it's not just someone they they need a community to support them. Gotcha. What are some ways you think that as nurses they can be a part of the solution to making to forming a community that can be supportive? Well, I see it a lot in the school system. Some mm-hmm. of our school nurses um, can be very supportive and helpful. I remember one case that I was working on, and I was so impressed with the school nurse and how um, she reached out to the family and helped with um, coordinating some of the care, the, the IEPs or the, the planning for the child in school and how to reach out to the teachers to make sure this child got um, the resources that they needed. I also. Uh, look at the discharge teaching that happens with nurses in the hospital. 
I think about most of the children that have come through my home through foster care have been medically fragile. We're discharged from the hospital with um, neonatal abstinence syndrome, or they had been exposed in utero to um, a lot of drugs, narcotics, or trauma. Um, I had one child who came into my home uh, with shaken baby syndrome, had had oh, history man. of yeah, broken femur, brain bleeds, retinal bleeds. Um, and I'm a nurse and I'm really well-trained at handling a child with special needs and that needs medication or is on monitors or feeding tubes. I think about the foster parents that are thrown into it, go to the hospital because they're bringing home a new child. Yeah. And it's the nurse in the hospital that gives them the education to prepare them to go home. Mm. So nurses play a huge role inside the hospital, in the clinics and in the school system. Yeah. Well, maybe we can pivot towards that conversation we haven't had yet, which is specifically about children that have um, birth defects or just medical needs that wouldn't normally be there. When is that something that happens at a higher rate in the foster care setting? Like children who have been through the foster care system, do they have medical complications or needs at a higher rate than those who are not part of the foster care system? I'm actually really glad you asked that question. Um, the answer is yes. And uh, my colleagues and I actually published a paper in the Journal of Pediatric Nursing just mm. this year. Um, it came out just a few months ago and it looked at, it was a large data analysis um, and it looked at the rate and incidence of disabilities found in the foster care system compared to the regular pediatric population. Absolutely statistically significant, much higher rate of disability for children in foster care. And you have to ask yourself, well, is it because of foster care? No. And is it because maybe the disability is there because of neglect and abuse? Yes, in some cases. Mm -hmm. but, but is it also possible that children with disabilities have higher rates of neglect and abuse? Um, so it's interesting looking at the data and trying to sift through it, but we do have the children in foster care have a much higher rate of, of disability than the general pediatric population. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine there are times where a family makes a good effort to adopt in some way or another, and things just do not work out at really no fault of the parent or the child. It just, right. you know, it's just not going to be healthy for either individual or either group. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think having mature conversations like the one that we're having can be really important in helping set expectations and prepare people to make those types of important decisions. Right. And one, I guess one positive spin on the idea of, of adopting through foster care is when you have your own children, mm -hmm. there is no guarantee that they genetically are going to be perfect and not have problems. Right. right? Yeah. That is never a, a guarantee. In foster care, you get the chance to work with, um, People who understand disabilities are good at diagnosing them and recognizing them. Um, every single child that I've had through foster care, um, Provo Early Intervention has done a fabulous job at coming and helping to assess them for special needs and give them in-home therapy, um, mm -hmm. early intervention therapy. And because of that, um, the children that we um, have adopted or will adopt, we have a much better understanding of of what their needs are and how to help them more than I, I feel bad, but more than I have for my own biological <laughs> children. Right. Yeah. My, my poor bio, biological children, the first three, they just got a mom who decided to be a mom right? right yeah. and had no, no special training and didn't have professionals coming into the home to help them recognize their needs. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, with foster care uh, before adoption. Um, so for this current adoption that's coming up, um, she actually does have a genetic diagnosis. Um, uh, and if, if she were my biological child, I would have had um, no idea, right? But mm -hmm. getting into the adoption situation, I can say, I know what her special needs are. I know what her disability is. And I still choose her. I love that. That's tender. I feel like there's probably, I imagine that a lot of, parents and families, they'll beat themselves up that things aren't working with their foster child. Um, I mean, what, what does that look like? Have you experienced that personally or is, I mean, in your research, have you seen that? Right. There are a lot of times when families can get in over their heads. Yeah. Right. Um, and our family's been, um, lucky that, uh, but also I would say we have been well informed to make sure that we don't in a, take in a placement that isn't, um, 
that we're not a good fit for that child, right? Mm -hmm. We've had a few times where we've gotten calls for children that I knew we were not a good home for. And and the Mm -hmm. key is, is not, is this kid the, the kid we want in our home? The question is, can they find the home that's going to be best for that child? What home is, is best for that child? And in most cases, um, we have always been called to take children that our home was clearly um, a good option because of the needs of that child and what our resources were. Um, we did receive a call once that clearly I think we would not have been a, a good match. And um, we, we had to pass that one and say, I'm sorry, we, we can't take in um, that sibling group at this time. And which was fine because they called us the next week with one that our skill set was, was much better for. Yeah. And so it's about knowing and knowing your skill set, what are the child's needs and making sure they match before bringing that child into the home. Now, can that always be done? No. And if, if things don't work out, that's okay. There are other foster families and do we need more of them? Yes. Um, but it's being honest with yourself, um, with what you call your resource family consultant mm-hmm. and your caseworkers. Wow. What does that, that, that matchmaking process look like? I mean, you are a nurse, PhD, your husband, uh, econo- economist, PhD. I mean, you guys uh-huh. are both very well educated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine the type of dinner conversations that you guys have. How do they, how they go about <laughs> even matching a foster care uh, child in your guys' family? Oh, uh, that's, is, that's a good question. Um, our, our dinner conversations are quite interesting <laughs> and they vary in topics so widely and so fast. Um, I, it's, it's quite comical, but it's really enjoyable. And I, I hope my kids look back fondly on all of our, our dinner conversations or um, uh, to some, it might look like some arguments, but they're pretty fun. <laughs> um, but uh, luckily my husband is so, he's a very relaxed, patient, even killed person. It's hard to, it's hard to ruffle his feathers, which is good um, because we've come into a lot of situations that are um, rather interesting um, in foster care. Um, but the way matching works is that um, you go through the training this is my personal opinion. This isn't like written down. Sure, right. That I believe the trainers watch the families very closely mm. um, to see what their skill sets are, how they react, how they would um, respond to children um, who may have behavioral uh, situations and needs that aren't aren't typical or maybe um, confusing or make a, a, a parent scared if they haven't seen those behaviors before, and then. The, and so that's the training entity, like the Utah Foster Care Foundation. Mm-hmm. Then comes in what's called a, uh, a resource family consultant. And ours is just amazing. Um, we've had two of them over the last, see, we've been foster parents for 12 years now, I think. Oh, wow. And um, we've had two over that 12-year course, and both of them have been wonderful. They get to know the families. Um, separate licensor comes in to check the home and um, to review it. But the the resource family consultant is supposed to get to know us. Mm. They visit with us on a regular basis, our needs. We give them a list of what we're, what we're thinking when it comes to foster care. Um, we even give them a preference of what type of behaviors or children we think we, we can take on and which ones we don't think are a good match that our family probably couldn't handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that our family um, is kind of on our list was um, that I Um, I didn't want to take older children in that might have violence or behavioral issues that could hurt other kids. Right. Right. My, my rule has always been, I owe it to the children in my family first to keep them safe and happy. Mm -hmm. And if we can bring in more and do the same for more than we can, but my, my priority is, is the children already in my home. Yeah. And so if it was an older child um, that might not be safe around younger kids, it was, an automatic no for me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, um, most of the time I, I never got calls on that. I only got a call once on a child that had, um, recent behaviors, um, mm-hmm. that, that were violent towards other children. Wow. Um, That's a very detailed and thorough process. And you've mentioned only at least right there, um, three separate individuals coming into your home to help evaluate. I mean, how many people in total do you think are part of this process? I'm sure there's another there's a whole nother side of it on oh. the, you know, removing a child from a dangerous home or a dangerous situation. There's a whole nother group of individuals there. Oh yeah. It's extensive. So you have the, um, when there's concerns for abuse or neglect, um, 
there is an intake number that a social worker will get a call to decide and they decide whether or not it's enough to go investigate, right? Mm-hmm. If they investigate and they're concerned about the safety of the child, they don't have to take their findings to a judge. A child just doesn't, doesn't get removed unless, right. um, in my experience, unless there is evidence and serious concern of immediate um, injury to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a judge then has to order it. The social worker, caseworker that does the removal, that also usually involves the police. Yeah. Um, and then there's the layer of our licensor, which is a separate entity that comes, it comes through our home and um, the licensors through the years have been very different. I had one who um, uh, was really strict. So in a foster home, you have to have all medications locked up, right? You don't want kids to accidentally get medications yeah. or soaps. I had one who had me, um, wanted me to lock up my toothpaste so kids couldn't accidentally eat the toothpaste. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now my licensor now is, is, uh, much more relaxed with that. And, and I did point out that our toothpaste is pretty edible. No one's gonna, <laughs> no one's gonna overdose on toothpaste, but, um, there's the licensor and then there's the training entities, um, that we are required to have so many hours, 32 hours to become a licensed foster care, foster parent. And then we have to do an additional, um, 16 per year that keeps them in contact with us and how our family's doing. And, um, and then there's the, um, social worker that is over the case and that's a separate one that follows the child. Um, and then if you want to make it even more complex, almost every single one of the children that have come into our home have had at least four medical providers minimum. Wow. Um, so there's all that coordination there is the therapies that are involved, and then there's the legal teams. This gets really, really complex. If I even have to think about it, you've let's say you have two biological parents. They each have a lawyer. Oh, you then wow. have the baby's lawyer, the child's lawyer, the guardian ad litem. Mm-hmm. You then have the state's lawyer. And then if it moves into an adoption or anything else, the foster parents are required to obtain legal counsel. Wow. And I'm always amazed at how fast those lawyers turn over or switch. Um, our current foster daughter has had um, four different lawyers at this point wow. for this one placement. So it's a lot of people turning over. And that's why nursing, um, we intersect with these kids on so many different ways um, that we have the oppor- and the families, we have an opportunity to help them out. I can't imagine how stressful that is to become a foster parent or an adopted parent or a parent mm-hmm. that adopts. I like what you're mentioning about having nurses be the, the, the training link for parents, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just having a, a nurse that can sit down and say, here's what you need to do to take care of your child. Cause medically that's one of the biggest priorities of a parent. Right. Well, think if someone just dropped a new baby in your lap and if you had planned a pregnancy, you had nine months to think about it. Right. Yeah. And you might have, um, you've done an ultrasound, you know, if the baby's likely going to be healthy or not, mm-hmm. but you have time to prepare to be a parent. You're a foster parent. You get a call. and sometimes. I think the the longest time I've had from a phone call to having a child at my doorstep was two days at most. Usually wow. it's about 30 minutes. In fact, one of my favorite, um, uh, I remember, well, there are so many cases, um, but with, with our current foster daughter, um, I got a call and um, it was summer. So like our family was in a great place, right? My husband's mm-hmm. not teaching. Um, I had just finished up my dissertation and they called and they said, Christine, we have this, this baby that is, um, not doing well. Um, we, we're not sure, but we think she's not being fed. We think she's been neglected, but we're not sure if it's a medical condition. She's been, she's only two months old. She's been back in the hospital twice. She seems to do better when they, when they, um, feed her and send her home, but then she's not doing well. Mm. And we're not sure if it's medical issues or, or parenting issues. Right. Oh man. And I said, okay, well, um, I, I said, we're, you know, we're not an adoptive home anymore, right? Because usually with an infant, they want to place an adoptive home. And they said, that's okay. We just need your medical expertise. We wow, just need you to keep her alive. Like we need your home, Christine. And so I called my husband, Brennan, and he said, sure. Yeah, we can do it. Like we're having a great week. <laughs> so like <laughs> our house was clean. The house uh-huh. cleaners had just come. Everything was great. And so we were like, yeah. And they said, it'll probably be, um, three days to two weeks. And we're like, we got this. We can, uh-huh. we're experienced parents. We've had a lot of kids through our home. We can, yeah, you can do we, three can, weeks. we can feed this kid. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, and they said, and you know, she might not even come. 
um, uh, there are a lot of kinship, so extended family that can pass a background check and maybe take her. So, and I said, okay, well, um, will you have the the caseworker that's doing the removal call me if it happens? Cause I'm just on my way to pick up my kids from swim team. And, um, so I just left my house. It's a seven minute drive. I'm driving to go pick them up at the rec center and I get a phone call and, um, it's a caseworker on the other end, a, a removal caseworker. And she goes, um, are you Christine Platt? And I said, I am. She goes, I'm at the door with a, at your door, at the front door with a baby. Um, and I was like, oh, oh, I said, we'll be right there. I called Brennan. Luckily, seven minute drive from where he yeah. works, right? To our house. I said, get home. There's a baby at the door. Wow. <laughs> so, and then we worked with parents um, reunification for a year. And it was um, with her special needs and um, they, they decided to relinquish rights to do um, what was best uh, uh, for, for their daughter um, because they were not in a position to be able to, to care for her long-term. And so this turned into an adoption case. So now we, we are an adoptive couple for, for this child is what I've told the, our RFC. But I said, we'll help other foster parents out, but I'm, I'm pretty maxed out right now. Yeah, I, <laughs> kids. I props to you and your family that it can't be easy, but I'm sure it's rewarding as well. It is, it is. But going back to the thought, let's say a, they called you and dropped a baby in your lap and said, okay, well, uh, congratulations. Um, here's a child, by the way, they need to go home on, on a monitor. They might have seizures and maybe they need a feeding tube. That is overwhelming for most families. Absolutely. One of my families in the research study of the randomized control trial um, I mean, so many stories were so touching, but the one child had been left, um, this was a child in foster care in the snow, um, in the cold and had, um, lost limbs because of it. So this child was now in a hospital burn unit. A foster parent was called in to learn how to care for them, but there was no preparation for the other children in the home. So all of a sudden oh. this parent got a new child is in the hospital and learning how to take care from a nurse, how to take care of these wounds and the this, this skin damage. Um, but how does that parent explain to or prepare the children in the home how or why they have a new sibling who's missing limbs and mom has to be in the hospital burn center with them all the time? Yeah. It's, it, it would be quite shocking and a huge amount of stress. So my, my, one of my next research projects is actually hospital discharge uh, readiness. Mm. And as we look at a lot of research um, with Dr. Uh, Wallace up at the University of Utah is, is discharge readiness of caregivers. And so I'll be taking that into the caregiver of the foster child, but also I want to look at their readiness and how can we help the other family members in the home, like the children, be ready for such a huge and drastic change. Yeah, I can see how that's, that's needed for sure. Well, Christine, thank you so much for sharing your, not only your personal stories, but your professional insights with us and some of the research that you're doing. I hope that this interview has been insightful for our nurses who are considering going into research. It's been uplifting for nurses that are going to be working in ICU mm -hmm. and in uh, newborn clinics and being able to help educate families that interact with the foster and adoption services. Well, thank you. And one thing I want to add for the, the new nurses out there is that you can do research and clinically practice at the same time. They go hand in hand. So I still clinically practice um, as a nurse practitioner as well uh, in the clinic setting. And, and I get the opportunity. Um, uh, one of the projects is with cancer research um, up at the primary children's hospital. So it's not that you have to do one or the other. There is a way it's, it's a little bit challenging, just like multitasking uh, anything, but there's a beautiful way to um, combine clinical practice and research. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's a lot of good in the world that can be done when you do combine those forces. I, mm -hmm. um, I think it's a little bit funny that we've segregated um, medicine from medical research a little bit. It seems like people who do medical research sometimes don't even have backgrounds in medicine and having just emerging the two can be really powerful. Right. Or they don't interact with patients at all. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas a nurse um, is uniquely positioned to see how it affects, it's the humanity, right? How it affects individual patients, but also has the opportunity to take the research and, and blend the two to 
provide improved health and outcomes for individuals. Absolutely. And most of the interventions that are suggested from research usually ends up falling on the nurses as the ones that have to apply the intervention. So just including them in the first place makes a lot of sense. You're, uh, you couldn't be more right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Christine, thank you so much. Really appreciate you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, this was fun. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. You probably know you can purchase a white clinical jacket from BYUstore.com, but did you know you can obtain other items with the college logo? These include yoga pants, a navy zip jacket, or fun printed t-shirts. Visit BYUstore.com and search nursing to find these products and more. Today on the podcast, we'd like to welcome Brianna Oliphant and Gabrielle Warnick, who are both BYU nursing students, and they're going to share with us a unique experience that they had. Could you elaborate on what working with a professor outside of class was like, what your research process was? So it was very interesting because at the time we were fifth semester students taking Brandon's psych mental health class. So it was interesting to be able to see him in that professor role. But then each week when we would meet as a research group, it was much more colleagues. We were working on the same project. We were all submitting ideas and all those ideas were equally of worth and of value. And we were all contributing important things to this research. So it wasn't, it was interesting to be able to see him in one day as a professor role and the next day as a, like a it was still a mentor. He was able to help us through this research pro- process that he had experience with. Um, but we, our ideas were extremely valued as well. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the way that he went about it because I feel like not only did I feel like he mentored us really well as to what we were supposed to do because neither of us had really done a research project before. Um, so he was a great, he did great, a great job of guiding us as to what we were supposed to do. But not only that, but I came away feeling like I could do my own research. Like I, I do feel now that if I had a question about something, I know the sources to go to. I know how to look up the current best practice for things that I want to know. So that was really nice. And it was, I, I also love that he took us to present because I'm sure a lot of those people that presented had research assistants. Um, so the fact that we actually were able to not only participate so fully in the research, but to go and present what we found was really rewarding and fulfilling. All right, Brianna, um, can you tell me a little bit about the conference that you attended? So we attended the American Psychiatric Nurses Association annual conference, annual conference which is APNA abbreviated. And this consisted of psychiatric nurses all over the United States. There were people from all the way on the East Coast, all the way to the West Coast, where the conference was held in California in Long Beach. And we attended three days of the conference where there was a bunch of breakout sessions where people were presenting what they learned, the research that they were doing, and the insights that they wanted to share with fellow nurses. Awesome. Who attended this conference? Was it people who are working in the nursing field or other nursing students? It was mostly nurses that were currently working in the field and mostly advanced practice nurses that had their psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner degree um, and were board certified. I think Gabrielle and I were probably the only two undergraduate students that we found um, among the whole attendees, there were some graduate students I know of that were at the conference, but mostly it was advanced practice nurses. We were definitely the only two nursing students um, presenting. I didn't I don't even think there were graduate nursing students presenting. We went through all the presentees and tried to or presenters and tried to find more students, but we didn't see any. Wow, that's a really unique opportunity for you guys. Going off of that, Gabrielle, what was the podium presentation that you gave? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, since February, Brianna and I have worked as research assistants for Brandon Thatcher, one of the mental health teaching professors here in the College of Nursing. And we did research on spiritual care and specifically how providing spiritual care to patients benefits health care providers. Um, so... We did this research kind of at the end of last semester with the capstone nurses who were graduating and spent the summer analyzing it and putting together our findings in um, how beneficial spiritual care can be for nurses. Um, So that was what 
we presented to the conference was uh, the result of our research. Awesome. So usually when you give a talk in church, it's only about like 10 minutes long. What did you guys talk about for all of the 45 minutes? What was that like? Um, we thankfully had done a lot of practice because each of our pieces were about 10, 10 to 15 minutes. And so that's that was nice. It wasn't necessarily it felt like we were speaking for for hours on end. We had we had split it up pretty well to where we felt comfortable with the amount of time that we had. Uh, Brandon started off introducing us and he gave a little bit of background about spiritual care and how it's always been an essential part of healthcare. Um, and then Brianna w- went next and talked about the research that we did. Um, she went through how we did our research, how we analyzed it and, um, what our goals were when we were performing the research. And then I ended with a bit of analysis, um, around the research that we found as well as the takeaways that we wanted these practitioners to come away with so that they could incorporate what we found into their own practice. Great. So what were one of those takeaways? Um, A major takeaway that many of the students expressed was a greater feeling of connection that they felt with their patients while they were caring for them because they were providing a more holistic care. Them, They were asking about their preferences, about what type of spiritual care they wanted to receive, and then they were doing their best to give that care to them. And in doing that, they were able to really connect with their patients and then addition with the patients as family. A lot of the student nurses talked about times that they didn't provide spiritual care and how much regret they felt about not doing that and about things that they noticed that could have gone better and about things that about their care, things about their care that were lacking and this disconnection that they felt with their patients. I think the real significance to this experience came once you had finished presenting. Will you share what happened? Yeah, so at the end of our presentation, we opened it up for questions and I was surprised we had almost no questions, but we did get a lot of comments. We spent the next um, probably 30 minutes just talking to people and and listening to them express their appreciation for the fact that we had spoken about spiritual care. Going into it, I actually did feel a little bit nervous. I felt like, oh, you know, we're these students from BYU and BYU is this highly religious school. We're going to sound like this is just the soapbox we're always on. but. People were so appreciative that we'd taken the time to not only just express this, but actually research it and be able to show like it is so beneficial to our patients and to ourselves as providers. And so we were able to hear from a lot of people how grateful they were and how impactful it was to hear in such a public forum that we really do need to be emphasizing and providing spiritual care for our patients. One of the biggest things we wanted to distinguish between was spiritual care and religiosity. So emphasizing that you do not have to incorporate religion in order to talk about spiritual care. Many of these patients that the nurses took care of that we were surveying, they were not a part of a specific religion. And yet they were still able to provide spiritual care in assessing their needs in listening to them and providing compassionate care. And those are all aspects of spiritual care. So these people were really appreciative that we brought this to the attention of many of the psychiatric mental health nurses so that they could incorporate this in their own practice, teach others about this practice. Um, I remember the next day I was walking with Brandon. We were just going to one of our other breakout sessions. This was 24 hours later. And one of the people that attended our breakout session came up to us and just thanked us for such an impactful presentation. He said that it was his favorite breakout session so far and his favorite advice that he had been given at that conference so far. So I think it is very well. It's, it will be received very well for whoever wants to practice this type of care. It's amazing. That's awesome that you got to reach out to people like that and that it was so well received. We just wanted to ask you a couple of personal questions since you guys are going to graduate soon. We were just hoping to hear. So Let's start with you, Brianna. What are your plans graduating this semester? Are you excited to go start working? And what are your plans for the future? So I'm from Texas, and so I really want to go back from to Austin specifically. That's my goal. Um, I really want to work in the ICU, which is interesting because when we were at the conference, a lot of the people asked us if we were psychiatric nurses or if we were planning on going into psychiatric mental health nursing. And I think the important thing was that we... Even though we said no, and that kind of surprised them a little bit, but the research that we were talking about is applicable to any field of nursing. So 
yeah, I really want to work in the ICU. I've really loved taking care of critical care patients. So, um, Gabrielle, what do you have any plans for the future? And also, what does the healer's art mean to you? And how will you continue using the healer's art? Um, I have a job at UCLA Hospital after graduation. I'm going to be working on the cardiac progressive care unit, uh, which is where I've worked as a tech for a while. So I'm very excited to continue um, on that floor and transition into a nursing role. Um, I think this experience was very impactful in thinking about nursing as the healer's art. I have a brother who's on a mission. And one of the things that he asked me was how I can um, be a missionary in my life because missionaries love giving people challenges. And that was his for me. And I told him that my goal was to incorporate more spiritual care into my patient care. And I have realized as I do that, not only do I have more of a fulfilling day, but I feel more of a connection to my patients. And I feel that I am more able to provide the best possible care for them. As we conclude, we just want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Wow, Abby, that's really cool that Gabriella and Brianna were the only undergraduate student presenters at that conference. I think it demonstrates the drive that many of our students have. Yeah, that was awesome. I also loved how they were able to share about the importance of caring for the spiritual health of patients. I love that holistic approach to healthcare. Absolutely. And speaking of nurses who care, I loved talking with Dr. Platt. She is absolutely incredible. I was very impressed by her. Adopting multiple foster children truly encompasses the healer's art. I totally agree. It was amazing to hear about the way nurses can make a difference in these children's lives. Absolutely. They're very lucky. Well, that's all we have for our listeners today. Remember, you can find us anywhere you get your podcast. Tune in next week. We'll see you there. Bye, friends. <laughs>